Hi, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. I have Willem Auenail on the line, and I took the chance to speak with him about another book that he's recently written called The Heidelberg Diary. It's a daily devotional on the Heidelberg Catechism, and Willem tells us about the history and the importance of the Heidelberg Catechism, the point of catechesis in general, and why we should not think of this catechism primarily as a theological document. I hope you enjoy it. Also, this is the final episode of Season 1. Thanks so much for being with us over the past few months. It's been loads of fun and an awesome learning experience. We'll be back in September with some exciting subjects and some really great guests. We hope to get you then. And now here's Willem Awanale with the Heidelberg Diary. Willem, I would uh, I would like to uh, to switch gears and uh, and also ask a little bit about uh, the Heidelberg Diary. You've actually got uh, got a second, at least in English, a second book out for this year. Uh, it's a it's a daily devotional on the Heidelberg Catechism called the Heidelberg Diary, and uh, this Heidelberg is Diary. the Heidelberg Diary. And this this is really interesting. And I uh, I got to be involved a bit in uh, in producing this book, uh, but I I really enjoyed uh, going through it. I really enjoyed the uh, the content in it. But uh, throwing back to uh, to where we began our our first conversation. Um, Willem, you're, you're a biologist, a philosopher, a, a theologian. Um, what, what prompted you to write a daily devotional? <laughs> you see, I suppose I am the first non-reformed author to write a book on the Heidelberg Catechism, although I'm not sure about that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, strictly speaking, I'm not reformed. Uh, if, if you insist on doing that, then... I could explain to you why I do not believe in covenantal universalism. I do not believe in double predestination. That these are the most important things. Okay, but sure. I sympathize very much with Reformed theology, um, and so I was always interested in the Catechism. I live in a country where the, the great majority of the Protestants traditionally were Reformed, right. and are Reformed. So um, I was always interested in the Catechism, and uh, some years ago I decided to give a series of lectures, I can't remember right now whether it was 20 or 30, whether it was two or three year program, but it doesn't matter. And uh, my uh, the publisher in Canada, John Halting, he heard those lectures in Dutch, and he said he was very interested in them. Could I write a book on that matter? And he said, don't write uh, an ordinary book on the Catechism because we have hundreds of them. Write a diary. And I found this an excellent idea, so that's what I did. I first wrote it in English and then just like the Adam book, I translated it myself into Dutch. So we have the book here in Dutch as well under the title Dankbaar onderweg, thankfully on our way, uh, something like that. It doesn't work so good in English, but okay. Um, <laughs> And uh, so um, I made it uh, a diary in 365 uh, pages. I, I deal with all the issues of the, the catechism. Uh, of course, I do this in what people call a sympathetic, critical way. That is, I sympathize very much with the contents. I can identify with it, but also in a critical way. And I think a, a good Reformed theologian should have done the same thing, namely... Uh, we cannot imagine that all those things that in the middle of the 16th century 
were written down that we could all accept them without any criticism in this exactly the same way today. But the criticism is always uh, of a sympathetic nature, as I trust. Sure. No, that's, uh, that's fair. The most difficult part was uh, baptism, of course. Right. Um, but uh, I think I, tr- I handled this by giving both the view of the Reformed Baptists and also of the traditional Reformed uh, pedo-baptism view. Yeah, that uh, it comes out it comes out pretty clearly. Even the typesetter um, was uh, was in touch with me, and uh, and she's a she's a Reformed Baptist herself, and she said, "Oh, I didn't realize this was a book about pedobaptism." <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't. It's a book about, I, you know, I, it's, it's it's one of the sorriest things to quarrel about baptism because it keeps people apart that in so many ways should be together. So I always try to avoid any controversy on on baptism. Okay, sure. But uh, that is only one issue. Another one, of course, is with my Catholic friends, the question of uh, the Lord's Supper and of the idolatrous nature, supposedly, of the Eucharist, etc. So I also try to handle that part. But, you know, there are several denominations in North America that already also have distanced themselves from the traditional formulation. Right. I mean, we cannot say that uh, Catholics are idolaters in the way they celebrate the Eucharist. So that was another critical point. But there are, again, many Reformed theologians who fully agree with me. And I mean, like, as you say, it's a, uh, it's a brilliant document. It's not inspired. It's not, uh, it's not above reproach. And uh, just the fact that it's one of several catechisms should show you that it should illustrate that it's not uh, it's not the last word on on any given subject. Moreover, it's so amazing that Zacharias uh, Ursinus, who wrote the catechism, was only 26 years of age, and that the man who helped him along was uh, Olivianus was only 28 years. I sometimes think that God called those people at a very early age because they all died so young. Right. It's like uh, the institution of Calvin, the first version of that was also written when he was 26. Uh, that is compared to today, it's, we can hardly imagine such a thing. No, no. Most, uh, most of us are still in school at that age. Right, we're still studying, you know. <laughs> now that's, that's, that's a fascinating element. And then to see what comes out, you know, it was only 40 years after the Reformation. And then to see mm-hmm. what came out of it. Uh, but over, I'd like to tell here in the Netherlands, I have 15,000 Reformed ancestors, uh, practically all here in the Netherlands. And they were all Reformed. They were all raised with the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism. I mean, you cannot just ignore that. Right, sure. And uh, this is the reality of, of the thing. And uh, in America, the, the, in, in Canada, the figures are a little bit different, of course, but there again, there are so many uh, Reformed and Presbyterian people, they too, mm. who uh, owe so much to uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Many, yeah. many generations were raised with it. Some people yeah. hardly could uh, give uh, passages of the Bible out of their... Uh, by heart, but they could all learn the catechism and, and say the catechism by heart. And only recently I found out why this was so. Most people couldn't even read, or many people could not read, even at the beginning of the 19th century. But right. So they yeah. had to learn those things at heart, by heart. And what they knew about their Christian faith 
was not so much long passages from the Bible that they had learned by heart, but they learned the Catechism. So that, in a nutshell, they had the whole Christian doctrine available to them. And that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is... Uh... This this is one of the three forms of unity that uh, that a lot of uh, at least in North America a lot of the churches that have reformed in the name of their denomination that they will uh, they will ascribe to. Yeah, that's right. The other one, the, the Belgic Confession, is of course highly interesting too. The the the, the canons of Dort are a little bit more controversial. They appeared in a much later time as as consequence of controversy, mm-hmm. but they too are are highly interesting. But I gave also uh, two years of, of lectures on the Belgian Confession, but I never dared to do that on the canons of Dort. They're, they're very complicated stuff, and I was afraid I would lose the interest of my listeners. <laughs> what I love about uh, the the Heidelberg Diary that you've written and about the uh, the Catechism itself, you point out sort of day one, uh, Q and A one. The, the it follows the traditional question and answer format um, is the uh, just the warm and personal way that the uh, the Heidelberg Catechism opens up what is your only comfort in life or death that's true so it addresses not just pupils it addresses believers Uh, that's highly interesting you know although those pupils probably were young they were addressed as believers as as if this was a self-evident thing it was not an evangelistic literature through which young people would come to accept Christ as their Savior. Right. No, they were addressed as, as believers, as those who had already uh, accepted Jesus in their lives and soul and hearts as their Savior and Lord. Uh, that, that's, that's fascinating. It is to educate young believers, uh, and, and old believers can also learn from it. Do you have, do you have any, uh, any insight into... Why it why it would start that way? I mean, if I were if I were to just be tasked with sitting down to write a catechism, I would have thought maybe you'd start with uh, with origins or like the transcendence of God or something, like something I don't know, yeah, something bigger. It really starts as a thing, and um, when you come to think of a number of Catholic uh, catechisms, but I think also the Westminster Catechism, if I remember correctly. They begin with a, on a different tone, which is also very, very important. Namely, why are we here on earth? We are here for God's glory. Right. To put yeah. it very simple. Yeah. Um, that's also very important. Then God is first. In Heidelberg, me and my salvation are first. And that is not a problem, uh, of course, and, uh, because it's correct. But the other one, God and his glory, that's also a very, very nice beginning. And then you have to work that out, uh, etc. In the, in, the, in, the, in the way it's done in the Catechism and also, in fact, in the Westminster uh, Catechism. It's interesting to compare those two, especially because the Westminster Catechism is, is much younger, uh, almost uh, 90 years if I'm, or 50 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so not, that, there's uh, a lot more theology in, in, in the Westminster Catechism. You can see there's been a lot of reflection in those 80 and 90 years. Right. And this is why I... I actually like the catechism, the Heidelberg catechism more. It's pure. It, it stands closer to, yeah, the, the wrestlings of faith that, that, that were characteristic of the, the Reformation. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know exactly when it was drafted, but I think it was officially adopted in 1563. 
Um, yeah, something like that. I think that was also the time, 61 or 63, that it was written. Okay. Um, uh, whereas the Westminster Catechism is about 1647, that is a lot, a lot later. Right. And right. there's too much theology in that one. You know, uh, it, it's, it's so important that we do not, uh, shall I say, plague our Christ, our church audiences with theology. Theology is for the specialists. Um, but bring to them plain knowledge of the scriptures. And in that sense, I like the Heidelberger more than I like the Westminster uh, Catechism. Hmm. It's a little bit too much theology in it. What do you think of, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if it's made it, uh, made it over to Europe in any ma- meaningful way, but uh, a little while ago, um, I know that uh, Tim Keller, and I don't know who else uh, was involved in it, but uh, there's, a, there's a catechism, um, a modern catechism called the New City Catechism. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of that. Okay. And I'm always interested to see attempts. We had have, we have several such attempts in, in the Netherlands. I can tell you one thing. They will have very, very little effect. And, you know, it's like the Nicene Creed, which is right. much, much older. Yeah. But it's also uh, imperishable. It, it might not be ideal. It's human work. But, you know, uh, this is how we have been saying these things for 1600 years, like it is in the Nicene Creed. And it's a little bit the same with the Heidelberg Catechism. Of course, there are important subjects that are not in the Heidelberg Catechism, and so far, uh, there is room for additions, not not uh, so much for a new catechism, but for additions, like on ethical issues, especially on Israel, right. uh, also... Uh, uh, on the spiritual gifts and so on, are different opinions, of course, but at least uh, something will be said about it, and more generally about the work of the Holy Spirit. There's little uh, about the kingdom of God, which today is in the center of the attention of theologians. Hmm. But, you know, this is not an argument against the catechism. It's only that we, after f- uh, f- 400 years, uh, would like to add a few other issues that to us are very important. But that that, that, that can be done independent of the catechism as such. Because this, uh, it kind of, as you as you mentioned, it was uh, it's more pure, I think you said, but it's uh, it's written in this a really I guess kind of unique uh, time period where it's a piece of early but uh, but still established um, Reformation theology, if I can put it that way. Yes, that is that is that is very true. Uh, of course, uh, even the issues between Lutherans and Calvinists had hardly been sorted out. Uh, all the whole, all the, there are very clear uh, Lutheran elements in it. You know, for instance, uh, what is said about the the law at the beginning, etc., and the distinction between law and gospel. But that, that is not a problem. On the contrary, it also makes it a little bit uh, more uh, ecumenical, if you can put it that way. And I think it was done on purpose. There's there's one article in which the writer takes very clearly issue with the Lutheran uh, theology, but most people even are not aware of that. You know, you have to point it out to them to say, ah, I didn't know. But uh, that is one of the most theoretical and theological uh, elements in the catechism. Uh, if I understand and remember correctly, it was added later on, 
There were a few things that were added later on, and they are not part of the, the they do not belong to the best parts of the catechism because they betray controversy, etc. You see? Right. Uh, they do not belong to the pure parts, so to say. Gotcha. So it's it's and, and even so, it's not a uh, it's not a really overt kind of jab at the Lutherans. It's uh, it's just a more subtle kind of statement. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, no, it's very important that we do, we do not deal with the categories as theological uh, documents. So we should not be too critical. For instance, when it comes to resurrection, where the body and the soul are reunited again, then. You may frown, frown upon that and say, hey, what kind of anthropology is behind that? But you know, that's not the way we deal with it. It's not a thesis written by a student to get his uh, PhD in theology. It is a church document. It right. confesses the faith of the church, and it's not a, philo- a theological treatment. And it should not be dealt with like that. that this is why the first article uh, is so very important, you know, where, where I confess my faith in a very personal way, as you said to yourself. Right, so the Heidelberg Catechism was written for for new converts and the children of believers, a, a family kind of uh, uh, affair. Yes. Is the Heidelberg Diary uh, for the same audience? Um, well, as I said, in a in, in, in a little parenthesis, uh, it's also good for all the Christians, of course. Although in certain churches, I'm not sure whether this is the, still the case in North America, but in the Netherlands, there are still churches where they repeat dealing with the Catechism every year over and over and over again. And then it loses a little bit of character of uh, in- instruction of young people. Um, I would rather, uh, and I say that again with tongue-in-cheek, rather add a new catechism for the more advanced in faith, you know. Hmm. When they have finished the Heidelberg Catechism, okay, a number of subjects, I mentioned a few of them, uh, in which they might now uh, grow a little bit further uh, to deepen their faith. But uh, the catechism is done over and over again. On the other hand, there is so much in it, you know, uh, it's not really a problem. Moreover, those churches are very, very few who preach at all on the catechism. I'm, I'm not sure how that this is in the North America, but here there are still churches where every Sunday night the pastors preach on the catechism, but then all their lives over and over and over and over again. Is that so right? that people there, again, know them by heart. Right. So it's very much part of Reformed culture in this country. And, uh, okay, but uh, I would like to see kind of addition, a new catechism, not to, not to replace the Heidelberger, mm-hmm. but to go into matters that are not dealt with in the Heidelberger. Right, so so like uh, like an appendix to the catechism? Yes, but I would not dare to do it, Myra, I must confess. It's, it's yeah. not an easy thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. Uh, but it, 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 might, it might be a good idea. Well, Willem, this is uh, this has been a, a great and a, an enlightening conversation. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time, and we are really looking forward to these books coming out. They'll be they're available in the Netherlands in Dutch, and uh, they will shortly be available in, uh, in North America here in English. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music and leave us a rating or a review. 
For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.